Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 20. It says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them, and he said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It, it is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet and to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who's in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the other ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now, I know those of you that have been a part of our studies for a while saying there's no way Jim's going to cover all of these verses in one study. Yes, we will. By God's grace, we're going to get all these done. Now, as I've mentioned before, Matthew doesn't write about Jesus' ministry in perfect chronological order, but he compiles much of Jesus' teachings. And this couldn't be more evident than in the section that we're looking at tonight. Now, the section we studied last week with Peter and the fish and paying the tax, that section is only recorded in Matthew's gospel. It's not in Mark or Luke or in John. It's only in Matthew's gospel. Now, verses 1 through 4, 14, here of Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 14, are also recorded in Luke and Mark's accounts, and we're going to get to them in just a little bit. But once you get to verse 15, from verse 15 all the way to the end of this chapter, in chapter 18, it again is a section that only is recorded in Matthew's gospel. Now, we're only going to get as far as verse 20 for tonight. But now, even though these topics that I just read to you in verses 1 through 20 may appear to jump around a bit, I hope that you're going to see a pattern tonight or a connection in them all. In verses 1 through 6 of Matthew 18, uh, let's read it again. It says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them. And he said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, 
It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Now, before I break these verses down for us, I'm going to take us real quickly to Mark and Luke. And let's read Mark's account of this and Luke's account of this. Because as you hopefully have been noticing, when we do, we get a fuller picture, a clearer picture of what all's gone on. And you'll see that as we take a look at Mark and Luke. Go to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, verses 33 through 37. Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 33. It says, and they came to Capernaum, and when he, this is Jesus, was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be least or last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Jump over to the Gospel of Luke. Let's go to Luke chapter 9. We're in Mark 9. Now go to Luke chapter 9. Look at verses 46 through 48. Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 46. It says, An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you, among you all, is the one who is great. So now we can see that this whole discussion about who would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven came about because the disciples were arguing about it amongst themselves as to who would be the greatest. Now, folks, if you've ever been in church, you know that this is a problem. They were all jockeying for position and prominence. You want further evidence of how much the disciples were jockeying for position and prominence? Jump over to Matthew chapter 20 real quick. Go to Matthew chapter 20. Look at verses 20 through 28. In Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 20, says, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, this is James and John, the mother of James and John came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before Jesus, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but is for those whom it has been prepared for by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So here we see even later on, John, James and John's mama comes and says, hey, Jesus, could you let them sit on your right and your left when you enter your kingdom? And when the other ten heard about it, they were mad, probably because they hadn't thought to ask first. They were jockeying for position in the church. Folks, how often have we seen people fight for power and authority in the church? How often do we pastors have to find out which family controls things when we show up as the new pastor? Let me just tell you, that happens a lot. 
We've learned over the years in ministry as a pastor, and I've been doing this ministry, that thing now, since I was 19 years old and I'm 55. I've learned over the years, you better watch out for the first people that greet you when you show up at a church, because typically they have an agenda and they're wanting to know whether or not you're going to leave them in power. Folks, let me just tell you this problem of jockeying for position as Christians is wrong. And it's a sin. But the sad thing is, is we in the church not only think that that's just how things are done, we see that it happened with the disciples as well, we also have a tendency to elevate man for more, with more prominence than they're supposed to have. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 with me and look at verses 1 through 7. Paul's talking to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Look at verse 1. He says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not yet ready, for you're still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, well, I follow Paul, or another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. And what do we do in the church? We fight for position. We fight for authority. We fight for prestige. We want to have a parking space. We like to have the name tag that says that this is my role or to be recognized as deacon. Folks, let me just tell you this problem that was there with the early believers, the disciples, has carried over because of our flesh. And just listen to the Spirit of God tonight and what Jesus does to teach his disciples when an argument arose amongst them as they came and asked him, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? But Jesus changes things on them in a couple of ways, as you hopefully saw in our section of Matthew 18 for tonight. First, he puts a child in their midst as an example of who they're to be like. They're wanting to think who's the most important, who's the most prominent, who's got the most prestige. And Jesus takes a child and puts him in the middle of them and says, you need to be like him. By the way, a child had no rights. A child had no power or authority. The only power or authority a child had came from who their father was. By the way, let that one sink in for a minute. The only power or rights or authority came from who that child's father was. Go to Galatians chapter 4 with me real quick. Galatians chapter 4 verses 1 and 2. Galatians chapter 4. We'll start in verse 1. It says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Of course, then he goes on and explains how Jesus came and set us free. And we enter into all the privileges of being children of God. But listen closely. A child had no rights or any power or authority. The only power, rights or authority that child had were tied to who their father was. By the way, did you ever think about the fact that Jesus came to the earth in the same way that he's teaching his disciples that they're supposed to be like? He came like a child. He came with no authority of his own. Oh, he had authority, but he didn't take advantage of it. 
He humbled himself and he took the role of a servant, the scripture says. And we're going to look at that scripture in just a second. But he also only did what his father had him to do. He humbled himself and became like a child and said, Father, what is your plan? Father, what is your will? Not my will, but your will. Did he wrestle with his will? Yes. Did he wrestle with his flesh? Of course. Yet he humbled himself and he took the same role of a child that he was teaching his disciples that they were to take. Go to John chapter 5 real quick with me. We're going to look at three passages real quickly in John. John chapter 5. I want you to see how Jesus took this role of a child. John chapter 5 verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. His power, his authority came only from his father. Go to John chapter 19. In John chapter 19, look at verses 10 and 11. And as you're turning there, John 19, verses 10 and 11, I want you to just understand the stage and the setting. Jesus is standing before Pilate. Pilate thinks, he's got all, all, thinks he has all this authority and all this power. And in verse 10, Pilate says to Jesus, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. In other words, he said, look, you would have no authority over me unless it was given to you by my father. I am submitting myself completely to my father and whatever power or authority he allows in, in situations in my life, I submit myself to it and I humble myself and I don't look at you. That's why the Bible says God will never leave us nor forsake us. What can man do to us? For those of us who understand the powerful father that we have, our heavenly father, the king of the universe, the creator of all things, we don't worry when the world says, I'm going to get you. No, we know who our daddy is. Oh, but the moment we step out from underneath his authority, the moment we start to take our own authority, the moment we start to do things in our own strength and our own power, oh, I'm going to do that and I'm going, that's when we stop being that child that he wants us to be. Go to John chapter 17. You're in chapter 19. Back up a couple of chapters to chapter 17, the verses 4 through 8. In John chapter 17 and verse 4, Jesus is praying in the garden. He says to the Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Jesus took the role of a servant, we all know, but he also took the role of a child. And he only did what his father had him do, and he only did it by his father's authority, and his purpose was to point everyone back to his father. Then Jesus does something else back here in Matthew 18, verses 1 through 6. He tells them they can't even get into the kingdom of heaven unless they become like children. Go back again and look at Matthew 18. Look at verses 2 and 3. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them, and he said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Here they were worrying about who's going to be the greatest. And he says, you sure you're in? <laughs> you, you're just worrying about what your, your, your mansion's going to look like. Do you know you're in it? Do you know you even have one? 
Go to Luke chapter 18. Go to Luke chapter 18. Look at verses 15 through 17. And Luke 18, look at verses 15 through 17. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. When the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him and said this, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Folks, I hope you're understanding that whatever a child gets, he has to receive. A child cannot do anything of their own. They have no money. They have no power. They have no say-so. They're just a child. And whatever they get, they have to receive from someone else. We receive salvation. We receive the ability to enter the kingdom of heaven as a gift from our Father. We do not earn it or achieve it. We must humbly acknowledge our lowly state and trust our Father to give us what we need. By the way, He's a good Father. He's a loving Father. And He's just waiting for you to ask Him to give you this entrance into the kingdom. But you have to humble yourself, become like a child, and say, I have no ability to do it myself. Remember when your children used to say, could you help me tie my shoe? I can't do it. Would you pick me up so I could see over the counter at the bank? I want to see. I can't see over the counter. Would you help me buckle my car seat? Would you help me cut my meat? Would you help me? A child says, I can't do it, but you love me and you'll help me. Would you give it to me? That's the attitude we need to have with our father. Go to Luke chapter 11. Let me show you what I mean. He's a loving God waiting for us to ask. Luke chapter 11, verses 9 through 13. By the way, this humble childlike attitude, is that what we're seeing in our churches today? Man, I hope, I hope you do. If not, I pray the Spirit of God takes this message. And well, I hate to use the term viral anymore. We don't like viral right now, do we? Go to Luke chapter 11, verses 9 through 13. Luke chapter 11, look at verse 9. And Jesus says, I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Some of you out there that are listening have been trying to earn your way to heaven, trying to be good enough, trying to, to do it yourself. You can't. If you'll humble yourself today and say, I'm not good enough. I can't get to heaven. But daddy, heavenly father, you said you'd give it to me if I believe that you sent your son to do what I could not do and live the sinless life. Was punished for my sins on that cross. And he died for my sins and he rose from the dead and I believe that he's God and I want to give you my life. Would you let me go into your heaven? I need you to give me the Holy Spirit. Give me this salvation. Unless you turn and become like a child, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Oh, by the way, don't miss what Jesus says in Matthew 18 verse 4. Look at Matthew 18 verse 4. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Not just the one who has become a child, not the one who turns and enters the kingdom, but you want to be the greatest in the kingdom? You intentionally act like a child. Humble, acknowledging your brokenness, your need, 
your inability to do it, whatever authority and rights you have come from your father, and your total dependence on your parent, your father, to take care of you. Listen to me. I'm going to say something to you. I'm going to show you how Jesus is going to be heading there in the next few weeks of our study in Matthew. But listen, the way up is down. The way up is down. In Matthew chapter 20, go back to Matthew 20 and look at verses 25 through 28 again. In Matthew 20, starting in verse 25. Jesus called them to him and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Why do you think Jesus is going to be worshipped forever and ever? Because he took the greatest low road. He humbled himself more than anybody of us, any of us ever could. Being God himself, he took the role of a servant, humbled himself, did nothing of his own accord. Everything he did was in submission to the Father, even though that meant death on a cross. In Philippians chapter 2, go ahead, let's go there. We've been hinting at it all night. Philippians chapter 2, look at verses 5 through 11. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Remember, become like a child. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Matthew 23, 12, you can write this down and go look at it yourself later on. It's a very simple passage. Matthew 23, 12 says this, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus said, as they were arguing over who was going to be the greatest, you got to be like a child first. That's who's the greatest. Oh, and not just that, um, you can't even enter the kingdom unless you become like a child and humble yourself and acknowledge your need. And you want to be the greatest? You need to become intentionally, daily, lay yourself down and become a child on a daily basis. The way up is down. Now, Jesus is about to use a phrase a lot in his teaching. And as I was doing my study, and I'm studied up for weeks in advance already. I'm pretty excited about where we're going next. And I have a hard time each week not preaching next week's study. But as I've been looking ahead, I've come to realize Jesus is about to use a phrase over and over and over again. And it's always in a different context, but the meaning is the same. This is the phrase you're going to see starting next week. The phrase is this, the first will be last and the last will be first. Let me, let me just give you a little commercial for where we're going. Go to Matthew chapter 19. You're in Matthew 18. Jump over to Matthew 19. Look at verse 30. Matthew 19, verse 30. Jesus says, but many who are first will be last and the last first. But now if you go look at the context, 
It's a totally different story than when you get to chapter 20 and look at verse 16. All right. In Matthew 19, we're dealing with the rich young ruler, which we'll get to in time. Uh, but in Matthew chapter 20, we're going to get to the laborers in the vineyard. And in Matthew chapter 20, verse 16. So the last will be first and the first last. Go over to Luke chapter 13 real quick. Luke chapter 13. Look at verse 30. Again, a different story. We've already seen Jesus use that phrase. The first will be last and the last will be first when it ties to the rich young ruler. And now it's also in the laborers in the vineyard. He used it. And in Luke 13, starting in verse 30, or just looking at verse 30, we'll see in the context here when he talks about the narrow door for, for salvation. He says in verse 30, behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. So, He's going to be using this phrase a lot as we move forward, and we're going to be breaking it down in more detail in later studies. But let me just say this to you. The way up is down. And folks, I'm just going to make this quick comment, and then I'm going to move on to our next section of our study. We have a tendency sometimes when we come into our churches, or even when we see other people around us, whether they're believers or unbelievers, to compare ourselves with them and think we're better than them. I don't do that. I don't dress like that. I don't use those words. I don't have those markings on my body like they do. Listen to me, folks. We have a tendency when we get around other people to try to make ourselves feel better by elevating ourselves over the people around us. When the Bible says we're to try to become their servant and humbly serve them. May the Spirit of God let that begin to take root in those of us who are His. And for those of you that aren't his, that you would understand your need to humble yourself before the Father so you can be saved in the first place. Go back to Matthew 18. Look at verses 5 through 14. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 5 through 14, Jesus says, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it's necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet and to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into the hell of fire. By the way, before I keep reading, don't miss the fact that Jesus says hell's real. The place of eternal torment and fire is real. Jesus said so. Keep reading. Verse 10. See that you don't despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who's in heaven. What do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Now, Jesus, as we just looked at these verses, you might have noticed he shows his heart for children and for us. He shows how much he cares and loves children and us. Look, look at chapter 19, verses 13 through 15. Chapter 19, verses 13 through 15. Then children were brought to Jesus that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and don't hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and he went away. 
So here we see in the verses that we just read, Jesus is using this child not only to prove how you get into the heaven, kingdom of heaven and how you become the greatest in the kingdom. He's also saying, don't for a second lose sight of how much God cares about each of these little children. Oh, and temptation to sin is going to come into the world, but woe to those through whom it comes. Be better if that person have a millstone hung around their neck and they be thrown in the depths of the sea because hell is so real and the torment and the punishment of sin is so excruciating. You, you'd rather never have been born than have that happen to you. And if you got a problem with sin, you better get it fixed quick because it'd be better to cut your hand off and if that's causing you to sin than to enter into hell with both hands. Now, he also uses this imagery, not just of the child, to show how much he cares for people and children. He also uses this imagery to show the seriousness of sin. And I've kind of hinted at that. You'll see again, he talks about how it's better to enter into life missing body parts than to enter into hell with all your body parts. Now, listen closely. Jesus says that temptations to sin are going to come. And that's the way it is in a world controlled by Satan. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Let me give you an example of what we just quoted there. Go to Matthew chapter 26. In Matthew chapter 26, look at verses 20 through 25. All right, this is Matthew 26, verses 20 through 25. Jesus is in the last night before he's crucified. He's eating his Passover meal with his disciples. And Judas is still there. And in Matthew 26, look at verses 20 through 25. It says, when it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, you've said so. Folks, I hope you're hearing first off, because if you don't hear this first part, I can't move on to the next one. So I can't wait to get back into having people all around where I can see on your face. Did you get it? Listen closely. I hope you heard the first part. If you don't understand the seriousness of your sin problem, you'll never humble yourself like a child and ask for help. Because if you don't think it's that big of a deal, yeah, we all sin. But you know, it's not that big of a deal. I've been pretty good. And most of my sins aren't that bad anyway. Folks, if you don't understand the seriousness of sin, you'll never humble yourself and say, I'm in trouble. That's why Jesus used the imagery of cutting off hands and feet. Hopefully you understand cutting off your hands isn't going to get you into heaven. Because your sin problem isn't in your hand. It's not in your foot. It's not in your eye. It's in your heart. Go with me to James chapter 1. I want you to see, folks, that we have a sin problem that's in each of us. We're born with it, as you're about to see. In James chapter 1, look at verses 13 through 15. James chapter 1, verse 13 says this. He said, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed, listen closely, by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That sin problem you have, it's within you. Don't think it your environment made it happen or Satan caused you to do it. Don't act like it's not that big of a deal because you know what? It's not really my fault. It is. It's your fault. It's my fault. 
We all have it. We're born with it. Go to Psalm 51 real quick. Listen to what David said in Psalm 51, verses 1 through 10. David understood. He had just sinned with Bathsheba. When he realized the depth of his sin, this is what he wrote in Psalm 51, starting in verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth, brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear the joy and gladness that let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. David understood that his sin problem that he had that manifested itself in many ways, but in this instance with Bathsheba and then killing her husband to cover his sin, when he wouldn't cover his sin, when he realized the depth of his sin, he said, I've had this problem since I was born. Actually, since the moment I was conceived, this sin's been in me. Folks, all of us are born with it. Cutting off your hand or your foot's not going to solve the problem. Jesus used that illustration to show the seriousness of sin. Go to Romans chapter 7. Go to Romans chapter 7. Look at verses 14 through 25. Paul writes this after about his experience in life after salvation, because you're going to see a couple of times he says, it's no longer I who do it, but sin living in me. Listen to the struggle that Christians even still face, even though we're born again, even though we've, been received, we've received God's forgiveness and his salvation, we still struggle with this sin. Romans 7, verse 14. He goes on and he says, For we know that the law, God's law is spiritual, but I'm of the flesh, sold under sin. For I don't understand my own actions. For I don't do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do what I don't want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I don't want, that's what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, that sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, but I see in my members, my body parts, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Here's the answer. Your Father, your Heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Folks, you want to... Acknowledge your sin problem. you got to acknowledge that it's in you and it's going to be in you until you get a new body. But the only way you can be made right before God is to humble yourself, become like a child and say, Daddy, I am a sinner and I need your forgiveness and I need your cleansing. Could you wash me clean? Jesus lived the sinless life. He died in my place. You punished him instead of me. Apply his righteousness to my life. I humble myself to you today as a child and say, if I'm going to get to heaven, you have to give it to me. If I'm going to have any rights for eternity, they have to be connected to who my father is. And I want you to be my father 
and Jesus my Lord. Go to Matthew chapter 18 again. Look at verses 10 through 14 real quick. It illustrates again God's concern for everyone and his desire that no one be lost and perish and all be saved. I don't want you to miss that. Because there's something in this section that has caused us to miss it. In Matthew chapter 18, look again, verses 10 through 14. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who's in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Don't miss this, folks. God's heart and his desire is that no one be lost. No one perish. No one go to hell. Now, God knows, and he's already shown us this earlier in our study, that wide's the path that goes to destruction, and many go that way. Narrows the road that leads to eternal life, and only few find it. But is it God's heart that anybody goes to hell? No. Don't believe anybody that says that God's chosen some people to go to hell and some people to go to heaven. No, God's chosen for us all to go to heaven, but we have to choose. He's made it possible for us to say yes or no. 2 Peter 3.9, write it down, look at it later. 2 Peter 3.9, he's not willing that any should perish, that all should come to repentance. In Acts chapter 17, look at me read to you real quick. Acts 17 verses 24 through 31. Paul's preaching to these Greeks who were super intellectual, and he says to them in 17, verse 24, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, doesn't live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of all the earth, and having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he's actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. It's time. It's time for us to respond. God doesn't want anyone to perish but all. And it's not his desire that any of these little ones perish. Write this down, look at it later on. Time-wise, we don't have time to, to, to take you there tonight. But in Ezekiel chapter 18, and Becky, if you don't mind writing these verses down for them, Ezekiel 18, verse 23 and verse 32. Ezekiel 18, 23 and 32. And Ezekiel 33, 11. This is okay, Ezekiel 18, 23 and 32. And Ezekiel 33, 11. You'll see where God says over and over, Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they should repent and then... He answers that later on and says, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, but they, that they repent and turn from their sin and live. But here's the thing that I want to touch on real quick from this section of Scripture. It's always been interesting to me that people want to spend more time trying to figure out about these guardian angels in this section than the, the whole point of the section, which is God's desire for all to be saved. 
You know, in here he talks about, don't despise these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father is in heaven. And then all of a sudden, all anybody wants to do is do a study on guardian angels when the scripture doesn't give us very much at all about angels. We see that they're God's servants who are going to sent to serve those who inherit salvation. And everybody wants to get into guardian angels and study about the angels when the context is simply God doesn't want anyone to be lost, but everyone to be saved. So I'm going to take you to two passages of the scripture that talk about angels, but we're not going to study them the way that you think you'd like. Go to Hebrews chapter 1 with me. In Hebrews chapter 1, look at verses 1 through 14. The Hebrew writer says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, and today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall to be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Or of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, Jesus, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of unrighteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They all will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but the, you are the same and your years have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not they all ministering servants sent to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Here in the context we see, we're not to be worshiping angels. We're to be worshiping Jesus. He's greater than the angels. Go to Colossians chapter 2. Go to Colossians chapter 2. Look at verses 18 and 19. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. Paul says, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and what? Worship of angels. Going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that's from God. Jesus says that the angels in heaven care about these little ones, and the Father cares about these little ones, and he doesn't want any of them to perish. And we all of a sudden want to find out, well, let's talk about those angels. You missed the whole point. The angels want the little ones to know Jesus. The Father wants you to know Jesus. The Holy Spirit wants you to know Jesus. Jesus wants you to know Jesus. The context of this passage about guardian angels, if you even can use that term, is about the fact that God wants everyone, especially little children, to be saved. Don't lose sight of what's most important. Now, in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20, yeah, we're going to make it. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20, 
Jesus now moves on to teaching about church discipline and dealing with sin in the church. He's dealt with becoming like a child and humbling ourselves and not jockeying for position. Then he's dealt with the seriousness of sin and how we need to humble ourselves and receive salvation and how God wants everyone to be saved. And now he's dealing with, in the church, sin that's going to happen and how it should be dealt with. Now, again, look at chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by the, my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now, here and in Matthew 16, 18, Matthew chapter 18, verse 17, and in Matthew 16, verse 18, are the only two places that the church is ever mentioned in the four Gospels. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 17, if he refuses to listen to, the, listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be as a Gentile and so on. In Matthew 16, 18, remember Jesus told Peter uh, that I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, which is his profession of his faith. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So in Matthew 16 and in Matthew 18, the only two places here that we see in the four Gospels, the church being mentioned. Now, here Jesus shows them that if someone in the church commits a sin against another brother in the church, that person who was sinned against should go to the offender for the purpose of repentance and reconciliation. That's why he says, if, you, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. The purpose of showing somebody their sin is for the purpose of repentance. So that person will say, man, I did wrong. I'm sorry. And reconciliation, that relationship would be restored. That's why in Galatians 6.1, the Bible says, again, don't time to turn there. Galatians 6.1, if you see your brother caught in a sin, you who are spiritual, go restore them gently. Now, if a person who sins doesn't repent, but rejects the person's purpose of reconciliation, then the offended individual is to bring a couple of other people with them in another attempt to show uh, the seriousness of the situation and have accountability in more than one witness. The Bible always talked about more than one witness, two or three witnesses to establish a matter. This will also help if the person that comes to the person and says, well, I think you sinned against me actually is wrong. Those other two or three people are going to go, actually, Joe, uh, you were wrong. Bob was right. You know, but if the others are in agreement that what has been the offense was a sin and needs to be repented of, they will go for the purpose of reconciliation and say, look, you need to acknowledge you did wrong here. You need to say, I'm sorry. You need to repent and let's get this fixed. That's the purpose of it. We are going to sin. We're going to still do some things that offend each other. And when that happens, we're to forgive each other as God in Christ has forgiven us. But again, the intent is to reconcile these individuals. And that's why I think scripturally, those two or three others that come with that brother should be close friends who have already proven their love and concern for the offender. I personally don't think that means the next people you bring are the pastor and the deacons. I think that's bringing it before the church a step too soon. The offense happens, an individual goes talks to that individual. If they don't listen, go bring a couple other people for the purpose of reconciliation, keep it there. If for some reason the Bible says that person doesn't respond to that next attempt, then you bring the situation in the matter before the church. Now, if the one who sinned is still unwilling to repent, but rejects the purpose of reconciliation, then the issue is brought before the church and the church leadership 
and the unrepentant individual is to be, sorry, the issue is brought before the church, and if he doesn't repent, the unrepentant individual is to be removed from fellowshipping with the body. Now, what I want to do real quick is I want to show you that one of the passages we touched on last week actually tied to this. When I read it last night, last week, I was like, well, that goes with next week's study. And so I quick and went back in my notes and wrote it down. Go to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. Look at verses 10 and 11. A passage we used last week for something else, but it connected to where we're going tonight. In Titus chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, it says this. It says, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he's self-condemned. Did you see it? There's the context. There's the whole thing. You go see him. Doesn't listen. You go see him a second time. Matthew 18, Jesus shows you bring some people with you. If he doesn't listen to those, you bring him before the church and remove him from the fellowship. And go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at verses 9 through 12. In this passage here in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 through 12, you're going to all of a sudden see how the whole context explodes. And this whole passage is going to look totally different now as you compare it to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. All right, 1 Corinthians 5, we're going to look at verses 9 through 12, and then we're going to jump backwards. In verses 9 through 12, Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy of the swindlers or idolaters, since then you would indeed have to get out of the world. But now I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It's, it's, is it not those inside the church whom you're to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Here the Bible actually teaches that in our churches, sin should be taken seriously. And if it's ignored, it's actually a hindrance to the church. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And there should be individual relationships that we can say to our brother, look, this shouldn't be happening. You shouldn't be getting drunk. You shouldn't be cheating on your wife. These types of things. And if they don't listen, there should be steps taken and if they're not responded to the way that they should with repentance and reconciliation, there needs to be a removal from the fellowship. Now, nowadays, we don't like that. A lot of people say, you don't have any right. You don't have any authority to, over me. You don't have any right to kick me out. Actually, you remember Jesus said something here in Matthew 18? that It sounds a lot like what he said in Matthew 16. Look again at Matthew 18, verse 18. Matthew 18, 18, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Go back to Matthew 16. When he began to explain about the church in Matthew 16, look at verse 19. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So again, we see that as Jesus gave him the instruction how the church was going to be started by the profession of faith, and Peter became one of the first ones in the church, he says, I'm giving the church the authority to say, this is how you get to heaven, and this is how you don't get to heaven. And whatever is bound on earth is going to be bound in heaven. And in the same way, he now says, when it comes to church discipline, God says, I'm there with you. You have my authority and I'm giving you my authority. And where two of you, you three are in agreement, I'm there with you and I give you authority to deal with this issue. Go back to 1 Corinthians 5. Remember I told you we were going to 
have this passage unlock for us in 1 Corinthians 5. Look at 1 Corinthians 5, verse, let's go in verse 1. Paul says, it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans. For a man in the church has his father's wife, and you're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who does, has done such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that the little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And then he says, let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. But listen to what Paul says. He said, I've already given you my authority as an apostle, I know about the situation. I've already passed my judgment and I'm not there personally, but I'm with you in spirit. And when you guys gather together, you've got my hand in with you. You have my authority. And that's what Jesus is saying in the passage in Matthew 18, which has been misquoted for so many years. Jesus says in verse 20, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. As we wrap up tonight, let me just say this and get it off my chest. It's been killing me for years. As a traveling preacher, I've been to many church services around the country. And so many times I've heard a worship leader or even a pastor stand up and say, well, there's more than two or three here. And Jesus said that where two or three are gathered, he's here. So we know Jesus is here this morning. And everybody goes, Whoa! The prophet in me wants to stand up and said, and yell out to the church and say, if I was here all by myself, the Lord wouldn't be here. You know, Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 20, in that day that you get saved, you'll know that I'm in you and you're in me and I'm in the Father. And 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says, examine yourself to see whether or not in, you're in the faith. Is Jesus in you? Folks, is Jesus saying that we need two or three believers for him to show up? No. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. He'll always be with you. Paul even himself in 2 Timothy chapter 4 said, At my first defense, no one stood by me. Everyone left me, but I wasn't alone. The Lord was with me, and he's always with me. When Jesus says, in this context where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there with you, he's saying the same thing that Paul says a few years later when he's dealing with church discipline in the same way, context is church discipline. The church has the authority to tell someone you can't eat with us anymore. You can't hang out with us anymore. It's not just coming to church service. We're going to break fellowship with you until you're willing to acknowledge that what you're doing is wrong. And if you're going to act like it's no big deal and still try to come to church and hang out like one of us, we're not going to let that happen anymore because sin is still serious. And we're not going to ignore it. Jesus died on the cross to take away sin, not so that we could act like it's no big deal. Folks, the context is church discipline. And I'm going to close with this tonight. Remember that church discipline, the purpose is repentance and reconciliation. Next week's study, we're going to get into forgiveness. And how often do I have to forgive? We're going to deal with all that next week. But for tonight, thank the Lord that he's with you, even if you're sitting there in a room by yourself watching this video.
and thank the Lord that all of these passages connected in the attitude of humility and becoming like a child. I love you. We'll see you next week.